0: I often feel slightly nervous when Psalm 119 is listed, because it's an incredibly long psalm, and you can tell that by the numbers of the verses, so I suggest you read the first part of it at home. It's on page 621 in the red other so starting at verse 129. Your statutes are wonderful, therefore I obey them. The unfolding of your words give light. It gives understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant, longing for your commands. Turn to me and have mercy on me as you always do to those who love your name. Direct my footsteps according to your word, let no sin rule over me. Redeem me from human oppression, that I may obey your precepts. Make your face shine on your servant and teach me your decrees. Streams of tears flow from my eyes, for your law is not obeyed. You are righteous, Lord, and your laws are right. The statutes you have laid down are righteous. They are fully trustworthy. My zeal wears me out, for my enemies ignore your words. Your promises have been thoroughly tested, and your servant loves them. Though I am lowly and despised, I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is everlasting, and your law is true. Trouble and distress have come upon me, but your commands give me delight. Your statutes are always righteous. Give me understanding that I may live. I call with all my heart, answer me, Lord, and I will obey your decrees. I call out to you, save me and I will keep your statutes. I rise before dawn and cry for help. I have put my hope in your word. My eyes stay open through the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promises. Hear my voice in accordance with your love. Preserve my life, Lord, according to your laws. Those who devise wicked schemes are near, but they are far from your law. Yet you are near, Lord, and all your commands are true. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Well, this psalm is really calling uh, out the troubles of Israel and their longing for the day where Israel would be following the ways of God it's got this lament and given that we're talking about blessed are those who mourn it's actually that ethos of the Old Testament that Jesus is calling on for blessed are those who it's such a wonderful uh, psalm I do encourage you to read the rest of let me pray for us as we get into this uh, passage this morning gracious God we praise and thank you for who you are we thank you that you sent your son Jesus to live as one of us in these Beatitudes we pray that we will understand more of Jesus's manifesto his teaching through your Holy Spirit would you help us and through your Holy Spirit would you bring us back to yourself in Jesus mighty name Amen. well when I was a youth leader on my first youth camp the um, I didn't know much about how to run the youth camp, but I remember one of the Saturday night activities, and I went in and we had like hundreds of boxes of tissues. And I was thinking, what's going on with this night activity that we needed boxes of tissues? And I wondered whether it was some kind of game we were going to play, but then I heard that we were using the prodigal son story to teach the youth about reconciliation, the need to return back to right relationship with. God their father. Little did I know that we would use the boxes of tissues because the minute we started revealing to the young people about their need to identify with either the younger brother and needing to turn back to God or dealing with the older brother and dealing with their pride, that they would need to return back to God, confess their sins And that often led to people uh, bawling their eyes out. And so we had uh, boxes of tissues. But it wasn't emotional manipulation. It wasn't like we were just forcing teenagers to cry. The reality is that when people come to understand that the things that they've done wrong, the things that they haven't done that they know they should, there's a, when they come to a realisation of that, there's a sense of mourning that happens. There's a sense of an awareness that they haven't done what they should have done. That maybe they've hurt people that they didn't really intend to hurt and they're sorry for that. And that sorrow is a, a degree of mourning. And it's not just about an understanding of their sin, because I think sometimes we pitch, particularly to teenagers, we t- we pitch sin as a whole lot of rules, and have they broken their rules? And it becomes a sense of God is like the headmaster or the police officer that's checking up on the rules. Jesus comes along and said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. He's actually pointing forward to the resurrection. Where through the resurrection, the death on the cross. And the rising to new life, Jesus will make a way for all people to come back into right relationship with God the Father. And therefore, they'll be comforted knowing that when they repent, when they feel sorry for their sin, when they mourn of their sin, they'll actually be able to have a way of coming back into right relationship and their sin will be no more. N.T. Wright in his translation, and this is where it's not just getting to the emotional state. In his uh, translation, he says, wonderful news for the mourners! You're going to be comforted. I think this beatitude is going more than teaching us how we're to behave at a funeral. It's not about just being sad at the loss of a loved one. Jesus offers us these beatitudes to shape us, to mould us to show us who's included in the kingdom of God. And I think, as I said last week, Jesus taught in a world where people who had affluence, who had money, were told, well, God is blessing you. And it's not that. It's actually the the desire to see everything as coming from God and everything belonging to God. God. That's the people that God says are blessed. So, the second beatitude after that is, if everything comes from God and everything returns to God, then when we understand that we can't do it in our own effort, and that even though we try to do things in our own effort, we can't do everything right, what do we do with that? That's our mourning. And Jesus says, there'll be a way for you to come back and be forgiven for that. This beatitude does actually remind us though of our need for emotional intelligence. It does remind us of the need to show emotions that match the occasion. So whilst it's not telling us about how to respond to a funeral, it is actually telling us about showing emotions and that God gives us emotions and therefore we should be people who express our emotions to match the situation. Christians shouldn't be going through the world robotic in some kind of way where it's, it's. and this is the other trap, I mentioned the prosperity gospel last week, the other trap of the prosperity gospel is this uh, cheesy Christian who just in the face of all suffering in the world just seems to say, oh it'll be okay, God will work it out all in the end and they put on a smile. No, Jesus is saying to express the emotions that we should have for this for the world. So rather than speaking about an emotional sadness at the loss of a loved one, Jesus is actually talking to two key groups of people. The first group is those who mourn at the state of the world. Jesus is saying that Christians shouldn't be, oh, God will work it all out in the end, so let's be happy-clappy. No, if we see injustice in the world, we should be mourning that, and we should be outraged by that. We should be crying out about that, because Jesus is telling us that God our Father is outraged at that. Jesus is telling us that God our Father is crying at the injustice in the world. Jesus comes as a long line of people who weep for the state of the world, the psalmist who wrote Psalm 119, all, uh, all, um, all 200 verses almost of it, all 176 verses of it, all of that is a lament about the state of Israel, mourning at the state of Israel. Remember Jesus stands over and looks over the city of Jerusalem and He weeps, He's weeping for Jerusalem. He's weeping at the state of Israel. He's weeping over the fact that the religious leaders who should be pointing everybody to the coming Messiah, who is present amongst them, are doing nothing. In fact, they're actually uh, subjugating the poor, excluding the marginalized, uh, beating up on the downtrodden. But Jesus knows that he stands in a long line of biblical figures who saw Israel were not allowing, were not following God and felt sad about it. So think about all of the prophets, for example, who are seeing the state of Israel not following the ways of God and so they call people to sit in ashes put on sackcloth and go into mourning. Think of Jonah, who had to go to Nineveh and tell the people to sit in ash and sackcloth. They're sad at the state of the world and they, they, they call people to repent about it. Think about Nehemiah, who was in exile and heard about the fact that Jerusalem had been ransacked and basically the temple had been destroyed and the city had been destroyed, and he's sad and he seeks permission to return to his homeland to rebuild it. Think about Ezra, who who joined Nehemiah and and rebuilt the temple. And I think um, Helena spoke once about how, how when they laid the first foundation stone, they're crying, some out of tears of joy, but some that the temple had even been destroyed in the first place. There's a history in the Old Testament of people lamenting over the state of Israel. And then we get to John the Baptist. John the Baptist uh, mourned the state of religious leadership in Israel at the time where he was alive. I mean, he, he was pretty harsh. I mean, he called the religious leaders a brood of vipers. Maybe we could say he's not mourning, he's actually outraged. To call religious leaders a brood of vipers is not just being sad about it, It's actually being outraged and and saying, you have to do something. And I think the people knew religious leadership was poor because they were flooding out to see John the Baptist. They were flooding out to go and get baptised. They knew religious leadership was poor and they too were outraged. And Jesus comes along and says, God sees you. God sees the outrage that you have about the state of your religious leaders and God sees you and says, you who are outraged about the state of the world are in God's kingdom because God's heart too breaks for the state of religious leadership. The Beatitudes is happening at a time where people were not only mourning the Roman occupation but they were mourning the fact that their religious leaders were actually effectively in cahoots with the religion uh, with the romans it's a sad state of affairs and jesus says that god sees it he hasn't turned a blind eye and his heart mourns in the same way that your heart mourns in our world today i wonder what jesus would see in our world and mourn i wonder what he would identify as happening in his world and see that something is not quite right. You see, I don't think Jesus is actually talking about a bitterness. I I don't even think Jesus is talking about a moral outrage. I don't think Jesus, in this day and age, would be on the front line of the moral police of our society. I think he would be talking more about the fact that God sees the people That society has turned a blind eye to. Jesus wouldn't be on the front line picketing for the things that everybody else is picketing for, He would be on the front line seeking the people who are uh, blind, the society is blind to. God has a heart for those who are absent from the main discussions and Jesus is saying those whose heart breaks for the blind people in our society uh, in the Kingdom of God. The call of Jesus, who sent His disciples out on this mission, is what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? I think that's where our heart, when it breaks for an injustice, like last, last week, those who went to 6pm, and, and you got to hear um, Beck Barnett talk about the Eden Project, She's not trying to fix trafficking of women into the sex slave industry in every situation. She's just doing it in Myanmar because her her heart breaks for that location and she can't solve the whole world but she can do it for one location. And sometimes God breaks your heart for one injustice in the world, not all the injustice in the world but just something in the world. And our, our call as a disciple is what are we going to do about it? because God's heart breaks but He motivates us to do it. It's like I said last week, it's not just that we're meant to be poor, no, God actually gives us resources so we can make a difference for the Kingdom. God actually does bless us with resources so we can make a difference in the Kingdom and part of the resource is our own ability to go and do things. But a second group of people that Jesus is speaking to is those who need to repent, This beatitude actually takes on a more personal tone as Jesus speaks to those individuals who mourn over their own sinfulness, who mourn over their own need for forgiveness, who mourn over the idea that they can't do it all and they see the times that they are weak and are frail and don't do what they really know they should be doing. God's heart mourns with them and they mourn, and it turns their attention to God. You see, it's one thing to mourn the state of our society, and and there's loads of people out in the community, and they've got a blog, and they've got a social media profile, and they're deconstructing society. It's one thing to be critical about society, but it's another thing to identify that I, as an individual, contribute to society, and therefore, some of the problems in society, I'm contributing to that as well. And I need to repent of that. I need to mourn about the way that I'm contributing to the state of society. And so Jesus is actually saying, yes, God sees you who mourn for the state of society. But what are you going to do about it in your own heart? Jesus wants people to examine their own hearts and come to the realisation, like blessed are the poor in spirit that they need God. They need God. Remember, this is a beatitude that comes between blessed are the poor in spirit and all the others, because first we come to understand that we need God, and then we mourn the fact that we try to do it in ourself without God. And this beatitude points us forward to the resurrection, where we will have a way to be forgiven for all the times where we haven't done what we've... Thought we needed to do. This beatitude calls for personal action, not just a criticism of wider society. Uh, I've spoken about the Asbury revival and maybe some of you have done more research into it and and maybe some of it's the first time, but there was a group of students who uh, were outraged about the state of the world, but their own lives were falling apart. There was a whole lot of problems in the college. They, 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 They themselves were struggling in a way that the society that they were outraged about. And there was a whole lot of deconstruction of society and a deconstruction of the faith. And yet God in his mercy, when there was a small group, out of a thousand students, a small group prayed that God would do something for their generation and God in His mercy heard the cry of their heart, the mourning for their generation and for their society, and He outpoured His Holy Spirit at Asbury University in February this year. And the students stayed in the chapel for 16 days straight, 24 hours a day, praying. And the repentance that happened in that was overwhelming. Student after student coming forward and kneeling at the front and repenting of their sin. But as they laid down all the things that they are mourning over, they picked up joy. As they laid down all the shame and guilt, they picked up hope in Jesus. As they laid down all the sorrow, they picked up hope. You see, Jesus is saying in this beatitude that God is not a police officer, that when you come and mourn and come before Jesus to repent of your sin, He's not a police officer who is saying, yep, I know all the things you've done wrong and now you're going to pay the punishment for it. No, Jesus says when you come back, you'll be comforted. When you mourn and realise your need for repentance, you'll come back. You see, God knew that this generation is deconstructing their faith and God doesn't want to see another generation walk away. These students at Asbury said that they they don't want to be the generation that abandons the church and they're crying out that God would do an amazing thing in this generation and I believe it. I think we've got another slide there, Vicky. When we were over in the UK, I was hearing a few things about how some students who had gone to the revival in Asbury are now spreading out around the world and we're seeing pockets of revival happening amongst college-age students around the world. And we went to Saint Church in Hackney where uh, they're seeing revival happen amongst young adults. A church that in 2016 started with 30 parishioners is now got about 700 people going along to church there. What are the conditions for revival. People who study revivals, I'm not a, I am not i do not study revivals and I'm, I'm taking the wisdom of those who've done this and one of the uh, lecturers at Asbury University, and maybe this is why God put His Spirit out at Asbury University, he, he had done all of his studies for the last 10 years on the conditions for revival and he's a lecturer at Asbury University. So when he saw it, he knew this was what God had done throughout church history but when he studied the, the revivals, one of the things he said is that it always comes at a time where people are discontent with wider society. The answers that wider society seem to have offered in the past don't work anymore. The second thing is that there's an angst at the state of the church, and sorry for my spelling mistake in that. People are upset and have an angst at the state of the church mark sayers who's a local pastor here in blackburn would say that when people start writing the eulogy of the church that's when god pours out his spirit in a fresh and new way and thirdly there's an increasing hunger for god a personal hunger for god in some of the revivals there's been three old people who've prayed for revival in the church for 20 years and then miraculously God does a work. Think about the Welsh Revival. There were three people in that church that were praying for revival and the whole village converted to Christianity. Perhaps you could look at that list. (laughs) You could look at that list and say, our society, our church is ready for revival. Disconsent at society. Well, I think our secular society is lacking solutions for the cost of living pressures. Talk to this younger generation, they're saying, is it ever gonna go down? They don't understand what's going on at the moment. It doesn't make sense to this younger generation, the cost of living pressures. Think about housing affordability. Think about the pandemic of mental health that's happening. And more importantly, we are never more connected We never have had more people around us, and yes, we have a pandemic of loneliness. A discontent with society, I think most people could agree with that. Angst at the state of the church, I think we could agree with that. I don't think the church could decline any further, could it? I hope it won't. And a personal hunger, for God, I think I see signs of that here. A personal hunger to experience the presence of God, I see that here. So, could we experience a revival? Well, I think the idea of this beatitude is that we need to come before God, repent and seek the presence of God. And when we do that, I feel that God will bless us, Some of the interesting things that those who study revival say is that God goes where He is wanted. Some parts of the church are arguing over rules, over who can preach and who can't preach, who can be included and can't be included. I don't think God wants to bless those people with His presence. But a group of people who are hungry for God's presence, God blesses that. And traditionally, throughout church history, God has done that. Asbury University was hungry for God and hungry for God to move in their generation and God blessed them. There were people who were hungry for God's presence and went to Asbury University and took that back. There were 60,000 college students who gathered in Oklahoma Stadium to have their own version of the Asbury revival. There were 700 people at a prayer meeting when we were in London they wanted God's presence. I think in 2023, God is pouring out His Spirit where people are hungry for God's presence. To a generation that is seeking meaning and purpose, God is bringing a sense of peace to a lost generation. But I want to be clear, this is not a return of fire and brimstone preaching or theology. I, 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 and again, I don't mean to cast dispersions on some of my predecessors, but I, but I think in our day and age, what was that kind of fire and brimstone, the, the fear of going to hell as the motivation for the preaching, it doesn't work anymore. But also, I think it, it, it counteracts this beatitude. Because what does the beatitude say? Blessed are those who mourn, those who want to repent of their sin. You will be comforted, not that there be wailing and gnashing of teeth, not that you'll feel depressed in your sinfulness, but that you will be comforted. God will meet you. God wants you to know that He loves you. I think rather than a return to fire and brimstone preaching, I think the world is calling out, for a return to preaching that God loves people and he wants them to return to him. I think the reason that so many of the teenagers on these youth camps would cry is because the prodigal son story tells us of a God who is not waiting as a police officer to check up on the sins of the son who's returning. But tells of a father who takes the first step to run to the son, to embrace him, to wrap his cloak around him, to put a ring on his finger and say, you are my son. That's the kind of preaching that we need to return to. It's not about manipulating emotions, it's not about making people fear going to hell in order that they might understand their need for a saviour, but telling them that if they come to a state of mourning their own state of sin and they kneel before God, God will comfort them and when they lay down shame, they'll pick up hope. When they lay down their guilt, they'll actually pick up God's love and when they lay down their sin, they'll actually pick up freedom in Christ. God is not a police officer wanting to throw someone in jail but He's a loving God who wants his children to return to him. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Gracious God, we praise and thank you for who you are. We thank you that you're a loving God. You're not a God who turns a blind eye to injustice but your heart breaks for injustice and you send us out on the mission to make the world a place like it is in heaven so give us courage to go out on that mission Lord but Lord also as people repent and come to you may they feel your love may they feel your presence and Lord we pray that you would pour out your spirit in this generation and we pray that this generation would return to you and we would see more people putting their faith and trust in Jesus we make this prayer in jesus mighty name amen i'm going to ask the musicians they're going to come forward and they're going to lead us in our next uh, song